Tonight's program is brought to you by the China Hockey Group. The CHG is a family-focused group of ice hockey leagues, training programs, and community initiatives. They focus on the growth of hockey in Hong Kong and southern China, as well as the development of student-athletes, where sporting goals are achieved alongside educational pursuits. The CHG is comprised of a number of hockey programs. Established in 2011, the CIHL is Hong Kong's elite adult hockey league. The Junior Tigers program is Hong Kong's premier youth hockey organization, featuring the Scotia Bank Island League and Learn to Play and Learn to Skate programs. The SCIHL is an adult league for those seeking a more recreational experience. In addition, the CHG showroom is the exclusive reseller of Bauer Warrior hockey equipment and offers services including skate sharpening and fittings. For more information and links to their social media sites, go visit ChinaHockeyGroup.com. That's ChinaHockeyGroup.com. Hey, hockey fans. Welcome to Across the Pond Hockey Talks Volume 46. My very special guest today is the former GM and president of the Danbury Trashers of the now defunct United Hockey League and is currently a boxing promoter and pop culture icon. Thanks to the success of the extraordinary Netflix documentary as part of the untold series called Crime and Penalties, he has quickly become a household name around the world. And I'm super ex excited to have him on the show today, folks. Please welcome to Across the Pond Hockey Talks, Mr. AJ Galante. What's up, AJ? Good morning. Thank you, Chris. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you, man. Uh, first of all, congratulations on all the, the recent success of the documentary. I'm, I don't, I'm not sure what's going through your head right now, but, you know, I've, there's a lot, of, a lot of pop culture icons and people who become famous so quickly, you know, have a really hard time handling this. How are you able to stay so humble and, you know, so gracious? And I've listened to a lot of your interviews and how have you been able to handle it so well? Well, you know, listen, I don't look at my, you know, I guess it's just I don't look at myself as famous or pop culture or anything. You know, I'm just, you know, around here, I'm just I'm still in Danbury. So I'm still just AJ. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah. you know, I think that helps. You know, I, I kind of in my my same surroundings and, and uh, you know, it, it's you know, you just I, I've not to this extent, but in a in a in a way I've 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 been under the spotlight at times at an early age, you know, on a much smaller scale. Don't get me wrong, but you you just learn how to deal with, you know, you deal with, with you know, maybe some attention that others may not get. And, uh, you know, I was always I was always raised to be, you know, you, you just have to be humble. And, uh, you know, and, and I've seen firsthand that, you know, you, you may seemingly have it all right now, but in, in a short day or two it could all get taken away so you know you cannot um you can't get ahead of yourself you know what i mean and just uh, you know always remain humble and uh you know and and also it's a funny thing i always tell people no matter no matter how old you get or what you may or may not accomplish there's always a, a handful of people that have some funny old pictures of you when you were a little kid or something so it's always good to yeah. know that there, someone has collateral somewhere somewhere in your life Absolutely. That's a good reminder, actually. So uh, Halloween just came and went, AJ. How many people were out dressed as Danbury Trashers this year? Well, my my uh, my year and a half, my year and a half year old niece, my my sister uh, had her dress up as a little trasher, which was the cutest thing. I actually posted on the Instagram and uh, I got a few people sending me stuff. You know, um, I had one guy who actually was a son of a former coach. He dressed up as a trasher and his girlfriend was the Stanley cup and he was lifting her up. And this, I was like, that's the funniest <laughs> thing I ever saw. So yeah, they, you know, it, it's just amazing. The whole thing is, is, uh, is, is amazing. And had I known it was going to blow up like this, I, I probably would have had more jerseys and merchandise available, you know, when this yeah. thing came out. So but uh, that was I, my next question. Uh, how how much how quick did you sell out of merchandise? It was I mean, I'm pretty good at anticipating. Right. So. 
I was under no anticipation what what happened. You know, the minute the documentary dropped, it was like pandemonium over here. It was like, you know, just stuff started flying. I I didn't even have jerseys ready or available because I was like, let's just see what the reaction will be first. And it's been like it's it's just been insane. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's a good problem, obviously. But, uh, you know, it's just super humbling to, you know, just to see how many people, you know, want to spend hard earned money on, on, you know, merchandise with a with a trash can with a hockey stick, you know. Well, it certainly is an awesome logo. Uh, I'm surprised it wasn't actually more popular for you for the last 15 years because it's such a unique logo. But uh yeah, do you think you'll ever take over the uh, the slap shop boys as Halloween icons? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they've been uh, they've kind of they're kind of they're kind of grandfathered in there, you know. And uh, it's yeah. one of those things where they've been around a lot longer. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, I mean, we're eight weeks since this thing came out, and we're still talking about it. So it's like it's it's you know, I keep hearing of people who just saw the doc now, and and it's like these things that they seem to like spread like wildfire. So it's like, I don't, I mean, how much longer can the momentum go? Can it get bigger? Can it die down? I don't know. And um, it's just been a fun ride so far. Um, um, They've been super busy with it all, but you know, we'll see what happens. Have you been getting any numbers from Netflix? Like how many countries your, the doc's been shown in and things like that? Not yet. So the way they do it, they explained it to me was, um, they don't have like traditional TV ratings, right? So what they told me is they have like two, two um, with their analytic department, they really have like two numbers they really look for. One is what they call starts, where someone mm-hmm. starts the documentary and watches at least, I think, five minutes of it. Then there's something I think it's called finishes, where, yep. you know, they calculate if people, you know, how many people watched 85% of it, right? Um. I don't know. I don't think we've gotten any like legit numbers yet because I think they wait like two or three months. But uh, it's going to be interesting. I'm very especially like you said, with the country thing, I I really want to see just like where it where it's hit. It's been a hit at. And it's um, it's just Mm -hmm. crazy to think about. I think you'll be pretty surprised because I my phone was blowing up the day this this documentary came out. Have you seen it yet? Stop what you're doing right now and turn on Netflix. I was getting all kinds of messages from people all over the world. So I'm pretty sure you, it's uh, it's been a hit all over the place. Um, <laughs> before we go too deep into the documentary, though, AJ, let's go back and learn a little bit about you. Um, I know you were born in New York and you grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and your family. Well, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, um, you know, up until this documentary, I thought I had a pretty normal, normal uh <laughs> you know, uh, normal growing up, you know, and, um, you know, it, it was like, listen, I'm 35. I was born in 86. So I mostly raised late eighties, early nineties. I mean, it was such a simpler time, you know, you, you have friends, sports, school, um, video games. So it was a pretty normal, normal childhood. You know, I had a, a group of friends that, you know, to this day, I still remain close with and, um, you know, most of my most of my summers were spent with my father, you know, and, and you know, at his office or, you know, at the um, at the yard over there on White Street in Danbury with, you know, the garbage companies and stuff. And, um, you know, I didn't even, you know, it, as I get older, I appreciate those times so much more because I, I learned so much um, directly, yeah. indirectly. And uh, I've always been kind of an old soul. So I like I've always been around a lot of older people. So. I think it's just natural when that's a major part of your environment. You know, I've always, I've always said like, I'm, I'm like an 85 year old wrapped in a 35 year old body. It's, it's weird. You know, it's, it's hard to explain, but um, I had a really good childhood. A lot, a lot of fun, a lot of great memories. Yeah. Um, so tell me about well, one of the memories you talk about is uh, the first time you saw the mighty ducks. And this is a funny story to me because over here in Asia, I've heard this story quite a few times, to be honest. The first time someone was introduced to hockey was seeing it on TV yeah. or seeing the Mighty Ducks. But hearing it come from you, a guy who was born in New York, your introduction to hockey was the Mighty Ducks was kind of surprising. So just a couple of questions about the Mighty Ducks. What was it exactly 
you know, about the story of the Mighty Ducks or the way they portrayed the game of hockey that made you fall in love with it? Well, I think, oh God, what, what I think that movie came out in 92, 93. So I was, I was probably seven and I was in Danbury at the time. And, and we, um, my mom just took us one day to go see the movies. I didn't even know. So you got to understand back then, especially Danbury wasn't a hockey hotbed. So we didn't even right. have we didn't even have an ice arena. So most of the main sports that were played around here, baseball, basketball, football, you know, uh, even soccer. And um, we went to the movies and, you know, I, I don't even know what we were going to see. And it was the Mighty Ducks. And um, I don't know what it was about the movie to this day. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the flying V. I don't know, but something, <laughs> something, something, um, something got me. And, and I just, you know, immediately after I was telling my mom, like, Hey, you know, we gotta, I want to go, you know, I want to get a hockey stick. And, and again, it's not like we had hockey pro shops around here and stuff. So it's like, we went, we went to sports authority by the mall and we found like a little plastic white net that would never stay up by the way. And like, some pups and, <laughs> you know, we found a stick and, you know, I kind of just, I would just be out in, in my driveway, like shooting pucks or balls for, for hours, you know? And, uh, but I just, I don't know what it was to be honest with you, but it, that movie just really, um, it really had a lasting effect. Yeah. Um, if you had to rate the three movies, one, two, three, how would you rate them? The three Mighty Ducks movies. Oh, God. Uh, I got a one and two. That's tough. I would probably go with number two because um, that's when the Bash Brothers formed. And I, I yeah. love the Bash Brothers. Um, I love the whole, you know, when when they were playing street hockey uh, at one point, you know, I would say it was probably two, one and three. I think that's, I think that was my answer as well. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, let's move on, uh, AJ, let's move on to the trashers. So you're 17 year old kid, you know, you're president and GM of a professional hockey team dealing with executives, recruiting players, handling issues around the team, talking to media. What was the hardest part for you at that time? I think initially the hardest thing for me was trying to figure out how to balance everything, you know, mm. you know, when, when basically this came to fruition and it was official, we were doing this, I was still a senior in high school. So one, I had to finish high school. Number one. Um, yeah. I, I also had just gotten accepted to college. So, you know, as you know, as a teacher, especially, you know, there, there's a little bit of anxiety. You're going to college and, even though it wasn't far away, it was in New York. It was like 40 minutes away, but still, you know, you know, little stupid things like how hard is college going to be? And, you know, just regular yeah. things. And, um, yeah. you know, you, you have a girlfriend at the time, you have buddies at the time. Um, and, and you just, the whole thing is how to balance it. Like how, how do I, how am I going to balance all this stuff? And, um, that was the hardest part. And, you know, like anything else, you, you learn to adjust. I mean, sometimes you just get thrown in the deep end and you have no, you have no other choice, but to figure a way out. And, um, yeah, you know, it took some time, but you, you start getting into a routine and, and, uh, you know, just adjust. Yeah. And just, uh, you know, you're just in high school, you're 17 years old, your hockey career ends due to an injury. And like any good father, your dad wants to make you feel better. So, what does he do? He buys you a hockey team. Yeah, right. That's normal. <laughs> yeah. It's <very> normal. <laughs> normal stuff. Yeah. So was it safe to say that the Trashers players were probably the best taken care of in the whole UHL? I think that's a pretty good, I think that's a <laughs> fairly good assumption. You know what I mean? Uh, but you know, my, my dad always taught me, you know, he's like, listen, you know, cause he, I mean, our locker rooms were like, I mean, for that level, I mean, you might as well have been in Madison Square Garden. You know what I mean? And it was like, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I just remember my dad's, you know, I, I remember my dad's, you know, I remember either me or someone close to us might have been my mother questioning, like, you know, there's a lot of money, you know, putting into this. But, and my dad always said, listen, these guys are our product in a way, you know, they're not 
things, but they're our product and you got to take care of the guys. And um, you don't want anyone to ever have an excuse on our end that, Hey, we didn't have this. We didn't have that. They had the best that could be provided for them. And, and ultimately at that point you realize, Hey, it's up to me to produce. Yeah. It's certainly, uh, you know, all, all those little details are so important for guys, like, especially at that level, guys who are still fighting to make it or guys who are at the end of their career, those little details are huge. Well, and that's exactly it. You know, a lot of people like to talk about, you know, what guys may or may not have been paid, but honestly, mm -hmm. whether people believe it or not, it's exactly what you said. It's all the little details that they just, you know, the bus. I mean, these guys were comfortable. I mean, when you're on mm -hmm. a bus eight hours to go to a game, these guys were comfortable. You know what I mean? They weren't right. on like a used school bus, right? They were on like a legit <laughs> like bus, yeah, like a sleeper bus at that. And, uh, you know, the yeah. locker rooms and, you know, always had catered food in there. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, maybe guys were getting paid a little more, but I think ultimately they realized that, that they were being treated like, you know, human beings. Cause in that, in that yeah. level of play, I mean, you think a guy's going to survive on 200 bucks a week before taxes. And then like, you know, and play his butt off for you, you know, play and, and, and you know, especially yeah. those leagues at those times, it's a rough league. And, you know, it's, it's like, all right. Yeah. If you want to fault us from, for paying guys or giving them something, so be it. But, I mean, we weren't going to treat them like, like, uh, you know, zoo animals. Oh, I love, I love it, man. I think it's how everyone should be treated. Um, and to have that kind of negotiating power is so rare in sports and in the, in the documentary, watching guys walking, talk, talking about coming out of their interviews with you and your dad and with smiles on their faces and just, you know, being able to make those guys that happy, that must've been a really great feeling. And, you know, you're not out there nickel and diamond guys and trying to make, shitty deals you're really like taking care of guys so they must have really appreciated that well especially the veterans who have been you know they more than likely came into those meetings thinking hey i've been in this song and dance before what are they going to say mm -hmm. and then when they yeah. realize you know they see me i mean literally dressed like this and my father's just yeah. a normal guy and uh you know i think they just were like this is different you know and um yeah we knew that if we wanted a guy, all we had to do was get them into an in-person meeting. If we could get them into a meeting and they um, spoke to us and they realized the type of guys we were and what we were looking to do, we knew they would buy in. Yeah. So, AJ, I had it on in the background here. I just lost the screensaver, but it was the, the image of you at the beginning of the movie. You know, I think it's such a great precursor to the movie because you know, the commissioner's breathing down your neck before things even start. And then they kind of, they kind of throw out a couple of comments and then it kicks, it kicks into you just laughing hysterically after your dad ag agreeing to not mess with anything or make a mockery of the league or do yeah. anything like that. And it's just you laughing hysterically. And it was such a perfect way to start the movie. Um, so when he was breathing down your neck and I, I think it was Tony Pompasello who said, he was like a minnow in a shark tank. Were you worried at all at any point about this guy or the threats that he was making to you and your team? I did get suspended one game. I forget which one it was. I did get suspended for some sort of action. I think it was the first season. So I knew he was serious, you know, and, and I got yeah. suspended. I couldn't go to the rink, whatever. But you know what it is? It was, it was like, um, me and him, it was kind of like an old 90s sitcom where you got like the serious principal and the, you know, class clown running around. But deep down, they love yeah. each other. And uh, that, yeah. that was us. And listen, you know, I, I. Contrary to what the doc may show or people may interpret it, I always had great respect for him and I knew he had a job to do. And my yeah. father, believe it or not, was always like when he saw me kind of going over the line, especially with him. He'd sit me down and be like, hey, listen, you know, tone it down a little, uh, you know, but he had a job to do. He couldn't be biased, but I think deep, deep in his soul, he loved it. I think he loved yeah. what we were doing. And, um, you know, he, he admits it in the doc that he, he started coming around. But uh, no, you know, listen, I, I had we had a way of 
you know, we knew where the line was and we had a way of seeing how close we could get to that line without totally crossing it. We might have totally crossed it a few times, but we always pushed it as far as we could. And, uh, you know, me and him, it was funny. He um, dealing with him was like dealing with another parent because he would be, oh, man, he he'd call, yell at me and be mad with me. And, uh, you know, it was great times. Well, you can kind of see it, like you said, like all the time he's talking and trying to be so intimidating. You can kind of see the little smirk in the corner of his smile where he's like, man, these guys are filling seats. The league has never been better. Like so deep down, he, you know, he's he, like you said, he was doing his job, but it seemed yeah. like he, he, you you guys won him over pretty quick. No, he listen, he, he loved my father. I know he loved my dad, you know, and vice versa. And uh I know deep down he loved me too, but I was definitely a, a thorn in his side for a little while there. Um, you talk about, you know, the bad boys of hockey at the beginning a lot. And, you know, was that, what was your initial vision for the entire franchise? Well, one of the first things my father and I spoke about was again, you know, kind of going back to what I said in the beginning is when the trashers came to town, you got to remember, Danbury had an ice arena for a total of like two years, right? So this was like a brand new arena. Hockey, like there's no hockey culture here. Nobody really, I mean, there's hockey fans, but it's not, you know, it's new. So we're like, how do we get people, you know, in a blue collar town to want to pay $20, $25 a game to come plus food, beverage, maybe a shirt. These are, you know, people got to understand like, over time, these are like these are like expenses for people. Like if you're mm -hmm. if you're a regular, this is a bill. So how are we going to give people? You know, you pay your Verizon bill, you got your phone all month. OK, great. But how are we going to get people to want to pay a bill? You got to look at it like, right. how do you mm -hmm. get people with their monthly expenses to put trashers in there? Like, how do you do that? And we realize, look, we're not the NHL. We're not even the American Hockey League. Um, yes, we're a high level pro league, but at the same time, there has to be an entertainment factor. And, um, yeah, again, I was a huge pro wrestling fan growing up, still am. And, uh, we kind of, the consensus was, listen, we're going to form this team, like a bad guy wrestler, like a heel wrestler. Right. And, and, uh, mm -hmm. because no matter what people, whether you want to see them win or lose, people in the wrestling world like to watch the bad guy because you want to see them get theirs eventually, or, you know, if they win, you get mad about it, but it's a talking point. So right. we, we kind of, um, boldly before even playing a, a game in our franchise history started <laughs> saying we're the baddest team in the land, you know, we're, we're the bad boys. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're the evil empire. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And, and, look, it would rub me the wrong way. And, and, you know, you got a 17 year old saying all this, you got a, a, a my father who's never been in, you know, hockey before saying all this. And, uh, it brought a lot of eyes and a lot of attention and, um, a lot of pressure, which I think mm -hmm. my father and I feed on because when you, when you, when you set that bar, now you have to back up your talk. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think we did that. <laughs> I think you did too. And now when you first hear the combination like Mighty Ducks and pro wrestling, it's it's a little bit confusing, but you know, really it's actually a pretty sweet mix of action and drama because I do have some thoughts on why you love the Mighty Ducks so much. I could be way off, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole family aspect of the Mighty Ducks, the bonding, the coming together, the having each other's backs, um, doing anything for your butt, for the guy beside you, like that's seemingly kind of resonates with your family dynamic and uh and of course the entertainment value of wrestling so putting those th two things together was pretty sweet mix yeah and the thing with and the thing also with the mighty ducks was you know in the beginning they're a ragtag bunch right like they're they're yeah. you know they're, i remember the one kid had like a football helmet on and it's like you know these are like these little underdog kids and uh you know kids that you know uh, you know district five i think they were like no one wanted yeah. to deal with them and you know Believe it or not, a lot, you know, the majority of the trashers were those misfit guys that nobody wanted to deal with or they were too much for this team. And, you know, you you 
you find a way to you find a way to uh you know combine it all somehow yeah oh i think it was perfect man and obviously it worked out well um well, was there something about the town of danbury though that made you think like you mentioned it's a blue collar town i've played hockey in these small towns and like you said the entertainment value to to drag people out of their homes on a yeah. friday night isn't easy i played on one of these junior b teams where we have five fighters. We were the worst team in the league, but yeah. there was 300 people in the rink shaking yeah. the glass every yeah. night because that's what they wanted. Right. Yeah. So what was it about the town of Danbury that made you think that that style of hockey was going to work there? To be honest, Chris, in the beginning, we didn't really know if it was going to work or not. You know, to be honest <laughs> right. with you, it was kind of like a guess. And mm -hmm. all I knew was, listen, you know, my dad, you know, he got into hockey pretty heavy when I started playing. All I know is when I used to go to NHL games, I'm a Devils fan. When there was a fight in those days, nobody sat down. There was there was like mm -hmm. or if you watched it on TV, if, if you followed the storyline or what guy ran this goalie two games ago. So now it's like a revenge game. There was like a a dramatic feel to that part of the game. And it was like, listen, you know, you got to play the percentages here. You know, people may like this a lot and maybe they hate it, but it was one of those, you know, let's, let's, you know, shoot now and ask questions later. Maybe we could adjust, but, um, right. We didn't know if it was going to work or not, to be honest with you. Um, but listen, we're so close to New York City, you know, um, we're about an hour away. So it's like, you know, you look at Madison Square Garden when when the Rangers had Ty Domi or, you know, uh, you know, you know, it's like one of those things where it, it like feeds off each other. There's just something about this area in the Northeast that like they they that that grit, they 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 appreciate that, you know, that that hard nose, you know, dig into the corners and um so we just kind of we guessed and uh, thankfully we we uh, we get we guessed right. You got it right for sure. Yeah, I've never seen a I've never seen a, an arena with the fans sitting down when a fight breaks out. So, well, listen, people listen, often ask me. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's one of those it's one of those things where, look, it's not everybody's cup of tea. I mean, um, but the people that like hockey, it's hard to ignore that people just. They, they, they like it, you know, or they, they, even if they don't like it, they won't turn away from it. You know what I'm trying to say? Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's the first question I'm usually asked by locals or people over here in Asia always ask why the sport is so violent and why fighting is allowed. And I often just think in my head, like you have to see hockey live to understand it because it's such a beautiful sport live. It's the best sport, right? Here's what I tell people. These guys, and I played, not at a high level, but I played. Mm -hmm. I tell people, look, pretend you're on the highway. You're going 70 miles an hour. And there's someone next to you going 70 miles an hour. And it might be an, a complete accident, but maybe they rub you. They, 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 they bump you. Yeah. In that moment, you're ready to go out of the car and, and, and strangle somebody because you're, you're mad. Yeah. Hockey yeah. players are skating. I don't know how many miles an hour and it's yeah. a very intimate rink. You know, you've seen it a million times, you know, goalie stops yeah. the puck guys are crashing a the net. There's bumping. You're met, you know, there's an emotion there. And, uh, you yeah. know, these guys don't, and that's, so, that's one thing I learned, you know, I wasn't in the pro hockey culture. You know, I learned at 17, the, the enforcers code and these guys taught me. They're like, mm -hmm. I used to think these guys hated each other. Right. And I'm, and, um, I would see a lot of these guys talking before the game with the other team. And that used to make me mad. I'm like, Hey, why are you talking to, you know? And they're like, yeah. oh, I grew up with this guy. So yeah. I'm like, Oh, and I'm like, all right, I guess they're not fighting tonight. Sure enough. <laughs> first period, they're going toe to toe. And I'm like, yeah, I thought you said you grew up with this guy. He's like, I did, but this is the, this is the cold. This is the game. Yeah. And I learned, like I learned all those little nuances of like that, that enforcers code. And, these guys don't hate each other. These guys are the best guys on the team usually too. So that's yeah. what I got to explain to people. Like it, it, you have to, for some reason, for the casual fan, hockey doesn't seem to translate on TV for people. You have to get them there. Absolutely. If yeah. You get them to the arena somehow. 
they it's going to be very hard for them not to want to come back. Yeah. Like you said, guys are skating like 30 something kilometers an hour down the ice. Um, I know you're a stack guy. Um, so here's a stat for you. I don't know if you saw this one, but according to ESPN sports science, the, an NHL hit is 17% harder than an NFL hit. Oh, and the players are 20% smaller. I, so that says it all, right? It's just the speed. And like, like you said, the, the, the code, what other sport has a code where two guys can settle something on the ice after the game, they're having a beer together or they're, like you said, they're chatting yeah. together before the next game. I mean, to me, it's a, such a unique part of hockey and, and it's, you know, it's, it's always a debate whether, whether fighting belongs in the sport, but I truly and honestly believe that it's a big part of the game and it's an important part of the game because it keeps you honest. You know what it is? Look, no one wants to see anyone get hurt. You know, I understand no. the concussions and stuff and, and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. I get it. And, and you know, Contrary to belief, we never wanted to see anyone get really hurt. You know, maybe a broken nose or something, but nothing serious, right? But the thing (laughs) is, like you said, from a business standpoint, okay, hockey would be crazy to take that out of the game because it's what separates it from football, basketball, baseball. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's been some tragic things that's happened with hockey fights, but, you know, there's – a lot could happen. You you could take um, you know you could t- you could take icing out of the game, and guys would be rushing a hundred miles an hour, and someone loses their edge and and breaks their neck into the board. So yeah, exactly, it's, it's a lot of different. It's a lot of different you know ways to look at it. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, like you said, it's such a unique part only available in hockey where there's no out of bounds either. No, there's nowhere to hide. No. So uh, let's get right into your, the first season of the trashers here, AJ. I mean, what better way to start the season than a phone call from the press box, your old man's calling down to talk to, uh, to talk to, uh, <laughs> to Wingfield, was it? Uh, could you tell me that about that phone call and, and you know, how, how funny was that as a way to start the season? Believe it or not, that was one thing I didn't know was going to happen. I remember sitting, you know, I was up with my dad and, you know, uh, it's funny because for the first game, our inaugural game, we wore suits. And uh, I remember he just like casually pulled out his little Nextel phone and, uh, you know, flipped it up, you know, flip phone. And I'm like, what the hell is he doing? You know, we're about to play. And uh, I remember he's looking, you know, you know, I see his line of sight and I look and I see Tommy Pompasello pull a phone out and just like it said in the doc, you know, so funny, man. It was so funny. And uh, yeah, that was basically verbatim what was said. Like, you know, hey, listen, the puck drops, you know, you know what you got to do. And, uh, you know, he kind of he kind of he he kind of uh, checked himself into the lineup. And that was that was all she wrote. And that being said, how much did you and your dad actually get involved in the coaching or strategizing? Did you guys let the coaches handle that or were you guys? more hands-on when it came to things like, uh, like with the coaching and stuff like that? You know, it's a great question. No one really asked that. I feel bad for our coaches because <laughs> first of all, nobody knows who they are because yeah. it was almost, and, and I mean this with no disrespect, it almost was like obsolete because first of all, we had a team. It was almost like, we were so in sync, all of us top down that there wasn't other than everyone knew my dad was like the owner. Like there was no like status, right? Everyone seemed to be on the same level and like I can converse with guys. I wouldn't like, I personally wouldn't go and tell the coach, Hey, you know, change these lines up or anything, but we would be in the meetings. We we'd know what was going on and um, you, you'd make suggestions and, you know, kind of whatever happens, happens. But uh, it, it's funny. A lot of the times the guys would look up at, at the stands and, you know, I'd be throwing little hand signal, like, you know, talking like we're deaf over here and, and they would know it's the weirdest, it's the weirdest thing. It's hard to explain. No, but I mean, it's, it's something that it's, it's either your hands on or you're not. So yeah. it's good to hear, you know, you know, you guys were really involved. So the first season gets off to a really good start for an expansion team. I mean, halfway through the year, you guys moved all the way up to first place in the Eastern division, eventually finishing the year with 95 points in second place. 
Um, and you won your very first playoff series. You set a UHL record with 2,776 penalty minutes. You know, a lot of crazy things happened in that first season. When you look back, AJ, what's, uh, what, what do you think was the most successful part of that year? I think, I think, uh, you know, they say sometimes the most successful people are the ones that lay low. Now this is a super oxymoron thing. <laughs> we, in a way, our team laid low in terms of how good we were on the ice because we were getting attention for the fights, for the brawls, for, you know, any little thing we were doing wrong, but on the ice, we were winning. And our skilled players were just quietly putting up insane numbers. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we laid, it was one of those things where the skilled players love being on this team because you couldn't even poke check these guys without there being an issue. You know what I mean? So these guys had a lot. I mean, you know, you played, mm -hmm. it was like an Olympic size rank. These guys had a lot of ice and they, yeah. they weren't even getting touched. Uh, you know, no one yeah. I've seen, I've seen, you know, not to sound like dramatic or making this up, but I've seen times where other teams, like I see it in their body. They kind of like let guys go. Cause it's like, why am I even going to try? Cause I got like eight guys on this team that are going to come after me. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's uh, but I, I do believe, especially in those days, I don't know how it is. And I don't, I don't think it, it, it applies so much today, but back in those days, intimidation played a large part in, in, in sport. And um, mm -hmm. I just think after a while between, you know, our actions and our reputation and even some of the rumors that, may or may not have been true things that were going on in Danbury people were beat before they even came. And it was kind of like, if you could take their soul from them before they even get off the bus, that's just one advantage you have, you know? Yeah. I think some teams had some long bus rides to Danbury. Um, was yeah. there any other teams that could actually compete with you guys physically? We didn't play them a lot, but, in the Western Conference, they had a team uh, in Rockford, Illinois, the Rockford Ice mm -hmm. Hounds. I don't think, I don't think they had the depth of toughness that we did, but they had some tough guys, and yeah. um, you know, both years. Those were we only played them twice, once in each season, but they were fun games. Um, as a yeah. matter of fact, I always tell people. In the second season, the regular season game we had at home against Rockford was one of my favorite games. Um, just high scoring game on both ends, a lot of, you know, physical play. But what happened was going into the second season, we altered the way a lot of these teams were being built because now it's like, look, we're in Danbury's division. We got to take up two, three roster spots with guys that could handle the teams yeah. at least. So that yeah. was another advantage we had is if, if you're going to have to take two roster spots where maybe you could have had a more of a skilled player and now you, you have to, you know, counter what we're doing. We just won again. So there's That's so right. many, it, it's a chess game. It's, there's so many different ways to try to get any sort of event. And look, we didn't go undefeated obviously, but you know, yeah. any way you can get an advantage, you know, legally, obviously you, you got to go yeah. for it. Absolutely. Um, I can't move on from season one without asking you about a few players here. So first of all, Brent Gretzky, I haven't seen very many highlights of him playing hockey. Can you tell me a little bit about his game? I always have great respect for Brent for a few reasons. Number one, I don't know if I could play hockey knowing who my brother is and that's not his yeah. fault. But the second thing I, I appreciate about, him was he actually was a good player um yeah. in our league especially i mean he was a top goal scorer point getter you know throughout his career and i think he knew deep down why more times than not teams were going after him and he kind of just um he kind of he kind of accepted it and he he i think he relished that role and and uh you know, it's like when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. I mean, he made the most, you know, uh, out of his career. I, and, uh, you know, he did run into some injury issues, you know, towards the end of the our, our first season. But um, he was a big part of um, our team. 
Absolutely. And I'm sure just having him around, his presence must have been special to, to help kick off that expansion year. Um, next, how about uh, give me a little bit of insight on Brad Wingfield. I mean, he's pretty well laid out in the documentary. You get a really good taste of the kind of guy he is, uh, the kind of player he was, obviously was very obvious. Um, his injury was horrific. Um, talk to me a little bit about your love for this guy. Listen, Brad Wingfield was technically our first signing. Um, you know, we announced Gretzky first um, for a lot of different reasons, but Brad was our first guy. And, um, you know, just like the doc shows, Tommy kind of showed me this guy. And I was just like, this is the guy. I mean, for what we were looking to build, this was the guy. And I mean, if you look at his stats, it's like um, he was putting up video game numbers. I mean, and, and this, uh, another thing he could play. I mean, it just so happened that his main yeah. role on teams were to be the, you know, tough guy enforcer. And that was his natural thing, but he could play and uh, he was putting up points. And, uh, you know, unfortunately he just, you know, uh, he just, it, the injury was so, I mean, to this day, I, I could see it in my head and um, you know, it was, it was, it, it was a tough break for him, you know, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, like you said it earlier, like those guys are, they're always the most loved guys on the team. Cause oh. you know, you just, you got to have guys, those characters, it's irreplaceable. No, And finally was, I got, yep, go ahead. No, no, you, you just hit it on the head. I mean, I mean, off the ice, I mean, he just, um, he kept everyone close and, you know, he just, he held the locker room, you know I mean? He just had yeah. presence to him. Yeah. And a guy who didn't get any screenplay really on the documentary, um, Jeff Daw, you know, the team's leading scorer by a lot. Yeah. He was an AHL, he was an AHL captain, you know, a guy who he was he was a guy who could play in the show. And he had a he had a pretty long and successful hockey career. What what made him such a great player for you guys and and uh, what made him so successful as a trasher? You know, he was one of those guys and um not that he was old, but he was older by the time he got to us. Yeah. He was one of those guys that you just like, he just stood out when he was on the ice, you know, like you could just tell he's been at different levels. And um, he was also just one of these guys that he didn't. It's so weird. Like, like you said, like it, it even to this day, it boggles my mind. He was like the leading scorer because when he was out there, he wasn't the fastest guy. He wasn't the biggest guy. He just, he just knew where to be at all times. Right. Like he just was like a, a wily veteran that just, he just knew where to place himself or knew where to place yeah. guys. And um, he just in any line that he ended, like you could put him on, like you could literally, like he wasn't the fastest, but you could put him on a line with the two fastest guys. And you would think, Oh, he's going to slow everything up. But he, He'd somehow everyone would adjust to him. And it's it's hard to explain, but he just always knew where the puck was gonna be. Um, he would back check, he would, you know, be good defensively. And you know, you look at the score sheet at the end of the um at the end of the night, he had four or five points, and you're like, How? Right. You know, I didn't even I didn't even notice him out there in a way, you know, and he right. just he just got the job done. I'm sure he was one of those guys that benefited from the oh, extra well, room out there. That that too. I mean, no one was looking yeah. to take uh, any liberties with with, with Jeff. <laughs> yeah. So the first season ends. Obviously, it didn't end the way you wanted, but you guys were really excited to get season two started. Um, and by the end of that season, you guys were firing on all cylinders. I mean, uh, were you starting to feel comfortable with the daily operations of the team in season two? Yes and no. I, I would say that I was more comfortable in that at least I had contacts now and, um, right. you know, which is obviously important. You know, I actually had to, yeah. I could go to, but I always, I never, and my dad always brought me up this way, but I never felt comfortable. Like there was a lot of pressure on us. Like, okay, we came in like a, like a storm. We, 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 yeah. we made our mark. How do you, you know, we set the bar high. So now the pressure is how do we sustain that or even leap over that bar? And um, I always felt a lot of pressure to just keep one upping ourselves. And, uh, you know, so yes and no, basically. But it was it's um, 
comfortable in a way that at least we had a little bit of credibility now. Like people yeah. knew we were for real. It had some contacts, but at the same time, now you're a target um, for other things and, and people know what you're about. Now you're going to have to adjust to their adjustments. So it, it's, it's, it's cat and mouse. Yeah. Now I know you've talked about this a lot of times, So season two had a lot of memorable moments um, and the revenge game. It has, we have to ask you about it. Um, tell me about that night. Um, tell me about the anticipation in the town. How was, what was the whole buzz and the whole feel around, around Danbury? It was super weird. It was like, um, you know, usually before games, especially our guys were pretty loose. You'd have music guys hanging out, talking, joking, getting ready. I mean, this game, it was like, you could hear a pin drop, you know, you walked in, it was like, everybody knew it, it was literally like, I hate using this term because I, I don't want to minimize like actual war, but it was like going to war almost like guys knew like, this is going to be uh this is going to be an interesting one, you know? And, uh, yeah. you, know, you know, Brad was like fully dressed like an hour and a half before the game, just, <laughs> you know, sitting in his bench and I'm mean, sitting in his locker. And, uh, it, listen, it was, uh, everyone kind of knew the deal. I mean, I don't even think our coach made a pregame speech. It was like, all right, guys, like, be careful. You know, that would, that was it. Do what you got to do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine that feeling. I'd be nervous. I'd be scared to, you know, I'd want to watch, but I'd be like, you yeah, know, no, like it, was that. Very, it was, it was like, and Brad's funny. He knew what he was doing because for all the anxiousness we had, we knew they had it 10 times worse than us. Mm -hmm. And Brad waited, you know, he was on the ice a few times with this kid and he kind of like a shark was circling didn't do anything right away, which goes to show you how cerebral Wingfield is because yeah, people thought the minute he went on the ice, he was just going to go out like a madman. But he waited. He waited a few shifts, and uh, he built, like, some serious anticipation. This poor kid, I mean, he probably had to change his underwear a few times before that game because uh, he, he didn't know when he was going to, you know, when the shark was going to strike there. I can't even believe like I can't I'm I was kind of thinking that he wasn't going to dress for that game like he must have been I don't know I don't care how tough you are going into that situation I'll say this I give the kid a lot of credit yes but I'll also say I'll also say going back to that code in hockey you know it could have been worse if they didn't dress him you know what I'm trying yeah. to say Absolutely. That, that would have been a very blatant disrespectful thing to like healthy scratch him or, you know, say he had a, you know, a hangnail, he can't play. Yeah. It probably would have been worse. So they did the right thing. And, and the kid, I give yeah. him credit. He, uh, you know, I, look, he took his lumps. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you got to answer the bell and he did it. Yeah. Um, so the first round of the playoffs start, um, you, obviously you had a great season in the second year and the first round of the playoffs, you lose your first two games at home. What do you remember about that moment and how was the team able to flip the switch and go on a nice playoff run after that? I mean, I was scared to death. It's like, you know, losing game one is always bad, but losing game two, that's kind of like that. That's I was really nervous. I was like, I think it was Quad City, too. We played and um, very scary moments because it's like, oh, my God, like, you know, we're, we're down. Oh, uh, two. And it, it. The guys just, you know, they just they were able to, like I said, in in house, the locker room guys, they just were able to bring these guys together and. um you know, to the coaches made some little adjustments, but they kept with what was working. And thankfully, you know, we we uh, we were playing with fire there that first round. But thankfully, we, we, we were able to get out of it. Yeah, unfortunately, you ran into a steamroller of, uh, of a team with Kalamazoo that year who were undefeated in the yeah. playoffs before before you guys won game two of the uh, of the finals. Or sorry, um, what was it about that Kalamazoo team that made them so strong? That goalie, his name was Joel Martin, I want to say. Okay. He was like, I don't know what, I mean, he was on another level. I mean, he was like Martin Brodeur back there, to be honest with you. I right. mean, he was just, it just goes to show you that defense wins championships. And um, <laughs> yeah. he just was, I mean, unbelievable. 
I mean, and we had, I mean, they played teams before us that had some heavy goal scores. No one, he just was on like another level. And uh, he caught, I mean, he was always a good goalie throughout the year, but he just caught some sort of crazy fire. And um, they had a very strong defensive team. And, um, you know, just wasn't our time. You guys were the only team to take a game from them. So that's a, a, a bit of yeah, accomplishment looking back. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. know. But they were, they were tough that year. Yeah. So you immediately set your sights on season three uh, after that yeah, abrupt ending and it all comes crashing to an end. Obviously um, the team, the waste management business are gone. Your dad is going to jail. Your entire town is devastated. What was the hardest part for you in that moment to getting through that, that, that year or two? Oh, you know, it's just, uh, just a huge letdown. Uh, you know, it just, it's so hard to describe. It was like double jeopardy. You know, the, the main thing was obviously, you know, your father going away. Um, mm-hmm. we kind of anticipated it was going to happen anyway, but still until it happens, you know, losing the team, you know, where you spent, it was just two seasons, but you know, it was like 24, seven, 365, you know, that was yeah. all we were doing. And, um, to kind of just one day wake up and it's just abruptly gone. It's, it's a hard, it's a hard pill to swallow. And like I said, it was, you know, as unceremonial as it could be. And it just like the rug just gets taken from under you. And, you know, we were catching some steam, you know, obviously, you know, we were selling out every night and it was just, um, it just felt bad. Like, disappointing the fans almost too it was it was mm-hmm. tough it was um very very hard to deal with yeah i'm sure there must have been some dark times there and like just a couple questions about your dad i know there was a lot of comments made made about him throughout the movie and the documentary he, they referred to him as a as a convicted mobster and uh i believe it was one of the twins who said it makes your butthole pucker when he walks into <laughs> the room and he's scary and unapproachable and then we see your relationship with your dad and the way, you know, the way you talk about him, the way you interact with him. How does it make you feel when you hear these things being said about your old man? Well, listen, you know, my dad's made no, no excuses for things he may or may not have done. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's things out there in the atmosphere, you know, listen, if the media wants to label you something, that's what you are. But yeah, listen, I just know him as, you know, the best dad a kid could have. Um, Yes. When I failed in school, my butthole would pucker too. I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't pleasant, you know, but listen, um, he, he's definitely, he's definitely a unique guy. He's got a, a business side to him and he's got a personal side to him and they're both very different and similar in the same ways. And uh, yeah, but listen, I, he's the, he's the best. Uh, he was, he's, he's always, he's put, he's given me more opportunities than I, I can even describe. And, um, you know, I've, I've been lucky to have him as my father, same thing with my mother. And, um, but, uh, no, you know, I've, I've dealt with that stuff since I've been young, you know, you, you hear right. things, you see the paper, this and that, but, you know, listen, it is what it is. You know I mean? Uh, yeah. I don't ask many questions anyway. So, it's not like if I heard something, I would ask my dad, what does that mean? You know, I was around him all the time. So I, I know what is and what isn't. And, right. You know, it, it is what it is. So you you probably learned at an, at an early age how to separate that media persona of your dad and like to your dad. Yeah. Listen, you know, it, it's hard to describe because my dad is a very unique guy and he's very he's very intense and sometimes intensity comes off as unapproachable or angry or mean, but he's just intense. I mean, he's a very focused, he's, he has a vision and he's, he's always thinking. So he, he's got a face to him where he looks like he's mad at the world, but in reality, he's just, he's focused on, he's thinking of something, you know, he's thinking, what can right. I do? And, and, you know, a, a, a lot more positives than, than negatives for sure. Awesome, man. So, Tell at the end of the at the end of the uh, your run with the, with the Trashers. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about how life started back up for you. Where did where did things go for you right afterwards? Well, when the Trashers ended, I, I basically had two more years of college, and um, 
I mean, I was a recluse. I was a recluse. I mean, I would just stay in my dorm weekends, go home. You know, I was just, I was, I wouldn't say I was hiding from anything. I was just, it was a depressing time. It was just very, yeah. you know, it was just blah. You know what I mean? It was, it was, it was, what you know, I look back at it and it was just like nothing to it. I was just going through the motions and, um, you know, you graduate college, you get a job, um, you do your job. It was, you know, fairly normal life, you know, I guess, yeah. well, whatever, whatever normal is, I don't know, but, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, in 2011, just as fluky as getting into hockey, I, um, got into the boxing business and, um, wasn't even a fan of boxing growing up, to be honest with you. And, uh, it was just an opportunity I saw. I was what, 24 years old. Um, you know, I was like, listen, this, this could be something that maybe, maybe, you know, there was a void, you know, and maybe this can help fill that void. And it has 10 and a half years later, I'm, I'm still in the boxing business, which is insane. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have a gym here and, uh, it's, it's nice. It's, it's, uh, very difficult and stressful business, but, um, I just think I was built for stuff like this. You know, this, this. Absolutely. I think I was built for the craziness, which is a sick to say, <laughs> but you know, it is what it is. It is. Yeah. And you talk about taking a leap of faith uh, in the documentary, moving into the world of professional boxing is promoting sports, your happy place or just promoting anything. What is it about that? Like, I mean, it's a tough job. Not everyone can do it, but you seem to relish on it. You know, I don't even think I know the answer to it because there's days I want to leave my gym and, and torture it. I hate it so much, you know? Right. But at the same time, it's such a part of the fabric of my life now. And, and what keeps me going is working with the kids and helping kids. And I guess trying to once again, try to develop a culture here, you know, and, and do something different, you know, plant your flag. And we're really the only ones doing it here. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what really makes me tick. It's definitely not money. Um, I, I just think it's maybe just the adrenaline rush. Maybe, maybe I always seem to be in industries where there's a lot of problems at all times. So it's like, yeah, maybe I'm just one of these guys that are looking to fix things. I don't know. It's a great question. I, I ask myself sometimes, like, <laughs> I don't know what really makes me tick, but I just think, um, you know, I enjoy the promotion aspect of it at times or sometimes I hate it, but I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm built to just, and there's nothing wrong with it. I don't know if I'm built to sit in an office nine to five and go home. There's nothing wrong mm -hmm. with that. I am, I'm actually envious of people who have that because, you know, I've learned to, you know, the key to life is try to keep it as simple as possible. I couldn't be more complicated. Right. So it's like, I'm jealous <laughs> of the people. It's funny. Cause there's people working nine to five. I know that are like, Oh, I wish I was doing what you're doing. And I'm like, well, yeah. buddy, let me tell you something. I wish I was doing what you're doing. And yeah. uh, I've learned, we all want the opposite, you know, whatever yeah. we have, we, we see the opposite and that's what we want. And then if we go out and get the opposite, we'll want what we had. Life is of nuts. Course. I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to get into a psychology class with you here, but I don't, <laughs> Well, short answer is I don't really know what makes me go. I don't know what makes me do some of the things that I, you know, I'm doing here. Well, not a lot of people can thrive on the chaos and all the things that you're involved in. So it takes a special person. Like you said, uh, everyone's different. Everyone thrives on different things. And you seem to handle that, that pressure and that chaos. Like, uh, it seems like second nature. Um, a few questions about the doc itself, AJ. When did you first get uh, the idea thrown to you from Netflix that they were going to do a documentary about your team? It was almost three years ago. It was right after Thanksgiving of 2018. They approached us, um, you know, the the Way Brothers who who did the whole Untold docs. Mm -hmm. They kind of pitched it to us. And um, it was one of those things where we were kind of on the fence about doing it. And we were like, I mean, how many times we're going to tell this story, you know, are people going to be interested? And, you know, we just thought, saw it as possibly a way to put the story to bed, you know, because we, we didn't have a ceremonialist end to the team, right. you know, and, and 
we didn't really get to tell our side as well. So I think we did the opposite. I don't know if the story's now to bed. Now it's like uh, it's like the story's bigger than ever, which is insane to me. So it's you just yeah. never know what comes of these things. So the idea came to you three years ago. So the process actually moved along pretty quickly. How long did it actually take? And was it, did you have a good time like doing the filming? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So they started filming the summer of 2019 because originally, you know, pre COVID we were going, this series was going to go out in 2020, obviously yeah. with the pandemic, everything got pushed, but um, it was, it was just, you know what? It's like talking with you. It was like just telling stories. And, uh, you know, I, I'm used to, you know, I've been on the camera before, so, you know, it didn't really jade me or anything, but I don't think this whole thing really hit me until the week before the doc came out where, uh, you know, the trailer comes out and you see it and you're like, Oh my God, this is like for real. And, uh, I had a great time. You know, I, I love the guys at Netflix. They were, they were great. We're still friendly. You know, I talk with them and, uh, just great guys. It was a, you know, once in a lifetime experience. I can only imagine. Did, did you guys have any say in the final cut or anything that was in or out? No, I'll say this. They were extremely fair with us. And, and we okay. knew, look, our job is to tell the story. Their job is to produce this thing, <clears throat> you know, but they were, they kept us in the loop. They would tell us, Hey, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Um, you know, throughout the process, Hey, AJ, can you get us pictures of this? You know, they didn't just right. come, they didn't just woo us to do the project, tape us and then leave. They kept us apprised to everything. And, uh, you know, we didn't really have real say in what went in and what went out, but they were extremely fair. Uh, they were extremely accurate. They didn't embellish a thing, which makes the story okay. much crazier. Um, they were just very, it was just a very balanced uh, situation. So uh, what, were, what were your overall thoughts about how the story came across? Was it everything that you had hoped it would be? I didn't know what to expect, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I was just hoping that it would be balanced, which it was. I was hoping that, um, you know, it, it was just fair, which it was. Yeah. And, you know, you just hope that people enjoy it, which more times than not, I've heard people have enjoyed it. So I think um, it, it hit on all the things we were hoping for. And a lot of surreal things have happened in your life, I'm sure, since the documentary came out. Um, it was, uh, well, the story was told about Drake and some of the celebrities that have reached out to you. Is there, is there one cool story that you want to share about something cool that's happened to you since, uh, since the documentary came out? No, it's just nothing. I mean, the Drake thing, you know, it happened literally, the, you know, I spoke with him the day after the doc came out. So it was kind of like it was that first week was insane. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, there's just been so many great things that have been happening, you know, you know, cool things that you, you know, you start being a part of. I don't think one thing is bigger in particular, but um just to support the outcry of support, you know, the people that really enjoyed it seeing like, you know, you're in Hong Kong. Right. So it's like, yeah. Seeing people from like all parts of the world that, that have seen this trasher doc. It's, it's, it's very humbling. Can't imagine AJ. Um, I'm not going to keep you much longer. I know you're a busy, busy guy. I want to thank you again for, for giving me this time. Uh, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you to stick around for overtime. It'll be, it'll just take a couple minutes. Let's do it. All right. All right. So tonight's overtime is brought to you by AccessoryHouseGlobal.com. When we're not talking about hockey on Across the Pond, we're usually listening to music. And after the number of hours our headphones spend on our sweaty ear holes, they usually need a little bit of TLC. Luckily, our buddy Brandon from Accessory House Global is there to help. If you're in need of replacement cables, ear pads, or heck, even a brand new carrying case, this is the one-stop shop you need to visit. Check them out on Instagram at TheRealAHG or visit their website at AccessoryHouseGlobal.com. You can even get a 20% discount on your first purchase by typing in AHG20OFF. Tell them across the pond sent ya. All right, AJ, I'm going to ask you a series of 10 rapid fire questions or one timers. So just say the first answer that comes to your mind, all right? Okay. Crosby or McDavid? Crosby. 
Price or Brodeur? Brodeur. Lemieux or Gretzky? Gretzky. Probert or Domi? Ah, little guy, Domi. Scott Stevens or Wendell Clark? Scott Stevens. That's a tough, that's a very tough one, by the way, but Scott Stevens. <laughs> Lindros or Neely? Oh, man. Neely. Don King or Don Cherry? Don Cherry, definitely. Your favorite current NHLer? Because he hit me up for a jersey and I'm just getting back, I'll say P.K. Subban. Oh, good answer. Uh, your favorite Mighty Duck? Because I spoke with him recently, Lester Averman. Oh, good. He's my fave too. Yeah. And last but not least, uh, I want to thank you. And I want to thank Keith Fong who helped set up this interview. He's the guy who reached out on our behalf and emailed you. Uh, and he's a big wrestling fan as, as he knows you are as well. And he wants to know who your favorite wrestler is of all time. And I'm going to add to that. Tell me what your favorite match was of all time. My favorite wrestler. I always juggle it. It's like 1A and 1B. Like, it's either Stone Cold or The Undertaker. But I, I got to go Stone Cold. You know, that was just such a big part of my life, the late 90s. But favorite match. Got to be Undertaker, Mankind, and uh, Hell in a Cell. When Mankind goes Great call. It's just like, I mean, it's not the most technical match, but it just, in terms of pop culture and, and just, you can't forget that as a kid. I was thinking you were going to go with a cage match. Gotta. Yep. <laughs> All right, AJ, I can't thank you enough for your time. I really appreciate it. I wish you nothing but the best and uh, whatever, whatever's next for you. I'm sure you're going to crush it. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate the time, man. All right. Take care, AJ. That was across the pond and that's a wrap. Thank you once again to our amazing sponsors, the China hockey group, accessoryhouseglobal.com, wheel hub, Asia, the Big Bite Restaurant, Felix & Co, Psalm Sleep, and Yardley Brothers Craft Brewery. And of course, our head honcho here at Sunset Studio, Mr. Paul McLean. Folks, if you want to reach out, send in a question or a comment to acrossthepondhk.com or find us on social media at acrossthepondhk.com.